For those of you who are new, welcome, and for those of you who don't recognize me in the time, my name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway, and we are so glad to have you. Merry Christmas and good morning. We are today in our last conversation in a series of messages that we've called True Religion. So what is it really? What is the real deal? True religion, what is true religion? And we've said a variety of things over these weeks, and we're going to add a critically important component of true religion this morning. I've talked about it before, but it bears repeating, let's say that. Very, very important for our faith, for our belief, for who we are, true religion. And let me kick this off with prayer. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning with, you know, all that we know of ourselves, and we just do our best to deposit that before all that we know of you. We thank you for inviting us. We do not believe we're here by accident. Lord, we also want you to speak today. So we give you permission to break open our chests and to massage your word for us today into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I said this two weeks ago. I'm going to repeat it today because it's also true for today. This is a warm season. It's a season that appeals to our hearts, and that's awesome because our faith engages our hearts. You know, Jesus said, hey, you can summarize all of it with this, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it's about our our heart being engaged. It's also about our will being engaged, deciding to step in with him. And it's also about our head being engaged. So this morning, I'm going to talk for a while primarily to our heads today. Crystal Klein works for us here at Gateway. She's a business manager for Gateway Village. Crystal told me this week about a documentary that it's on Amazon. It chronicles the period of history between World War I and World War II. I watched a couple of episodes of it. I, I love that kind of thing. You know, you can always tell the difference between a documentary and a fictional movie because documentaries tend to be grittier, grimier, and they have less dialogue. Sometimes they don't have very much dialogue at all. It's mostly a voiceover or interview format. The characters on the screen are obviously not actors, and documentaries will constantly reference real places and real people with with real names. When we listen to Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, it reads like a documentary, not like fiction. So I want you to hear Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to read along with me. It's pretty early in the New Testament. If you get to Matthew, go north. If you get to Romans or Corinthians, go south. Luke chapter 2 And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. It's on the screen. It's also on mygateway.life if you went to your browser and opened up the sermon card. Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And they did this periodically in the Roman world. They'd want to count and find out who was living where and how many. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town, and that means they would encourage, require, in fact, families, especially in the ancient Near East, because that was an unruly part of the world, they would require that they went to their town of origin where their family came from. So for Mary and Joseph, this meant Bethlehem. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth in Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So he registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This is a three-day journey from where they lived to Bethlehem, 
by donkey or walking, and Mary is nine plus weeks pregnant. So imagine that, ladies. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The local hospital was not admitting, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So what in the world do we make of this story? If Luke is intending to write documentary here and not fiction, how do we deal with this story? I grew up in church. I know some of you did not, but I grew up in church, and I heard this story my whole life. Every Christmas season, I heard it more than once, and I kind of knew the details of it. Mary and all those terrible Bethlehem people are mean, and they wander around. Joseph's carrying his pregnant wife. She's about to give birth. They finally find a place that's out back in a barn, and she gives birth to baby Jesus, and there's angels, and all kind of great stuff is happening, and some of the stuff was not very accurate, but some of what I knew was very true to the story, and I just assumed it was true. And then I got to the point where I doubted. Wait, what? And when I doubted, for me, the whole thing began to unravel. I began to feel like, you know, if I can't believe the kind of nuts and bolts of this story, can I believe it at all? And I was mostly right about that. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to throw out the whole account, the whole entire story of Jesus, if you don't accept the truth of this one episode. But I am telling you that the truth of these stories matters. The truth matters. Listen, you're not some kind of terrible person when you doubt this story. You're not even necessarily a bad believer. The story surrounding Jesus' life, this story in particular, is incredible. And these stories are written as factual accounts of actual real events, so we're right to test them. We're right to say, wait, what? Because true religion is true. True religion is true. And we've said a variety of things over these four weeks. This might be the most important. True religion is true. Here's what I mean. This is a fundamental axiom of Christianity. Ours is a belief rooted in history, in actual events. And by the way, this is unique to our faith. Many religious systems are rooted in the moral and philosophical teaching of their founders, or they're rooted in a way of living, a model of life. Our culture has its own religion, and we tend to think of religion like exercise. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Do whatever works for you because it's good for you. True, not true. Those are the wrong categories to think about when you're thinking about religion. It's better to think in terms of sincerity and effectiveness, but not for Christians. Our faith is not rooted in moral teaching, and our faith is not rooted in sincerity and effectiveness. We believe True religion is rooted in truth, both in the sense of ideas that are true and, more importantly, in real history. True religion is rooted in truth, both in, in the ideas that are true and, more importantly, in real history, in actual historical events. And when we listen to Luke, it becomes obvious that he's writing history. He's recounting actual events, at least in his mind. You may walk away skeptical, but do not allow yourself the luxury of thinking that Luke thinks he's writing a, a myth. Luke is writing what he believes to be actual events. To reinforce this, I want you to listen to the opening of his biography. He starts it out like this. This is Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who were from the beginning, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. We've been told this stuff by eyewitnesses. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time, and that word follow can also be translated investigated. It seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, an order, I'm going to lay it down for you in an orderly way, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So scholars who are smarter than me that know about this kind of stuff, they will tell us that Luke was a very well-educated, pretty sophisticated guy. For one thing, the Greek in, in Luke's account is very sophisticated Greek. Secondly, this paragraph and other places, but this paragraph in particular, it displays at least some understanding of how to do history. He's trying to do actual history here. In his account, he's intending to write history, a record of actual events that actually happened. So just from the section we read, Caesar Augustus, Roman world, census, Quirinius, governor of Syria, Nazareth and Galilee, Bethlehem, the town of David, mangers, shepherds, the expectation of Messiah. These are real known quantities that are attested outside of this account. They are real anchors in time and space. Now that doesn't guarantee that the story is true, but it does tell us Luke's intention. It tells us he's writing documentary, not fiction. So is it? Is it history? Did this actually happen? Can we believe it? Okay, in our time this morning, I want to outline for us six reasons to doubt the virgin birth. You're going to hear some of these during this season if you watch some Discovery Channel documentary on this. Six reasons to doubt the virgin birth, and then briefly... I want to respond to each of those reasons with some answers. Now look, this is not going to satisfy you if you're a skeptic. We don't have time for an exhaustive discussion. I just want to offer food for thought. And I'm hoping that for those of us who are of faith, this will actually encourage and inspire, stir our faith a little bit during the season. And for others of us who are on the side of the skeptic, I hope this will inspire further investigation. And I want to commend to you, if you're willing, a book by G. Gresham Machen called The Virgin Birth of Christ. It's not an easy read. So don't take this with you to the beach this summer for a good romantic novel. This is not it. But it does a thorough job of discussing and analyzing objections and affirmations of the actuality of the virgin birth of Christ. And then at the very end of our time together, I'm going to give us some walking papers, and I want to talk about why this discussion even matters. I'm going to ask, so what, for a conversation like this. All right, so reasons to, to question the virgin birth, number one. Only two of the biographies in all of Scripture mention it. So there are four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and only Matthew and Luke even mention the virgin birth. The others don't mention it. Paul, who wrote a number of letters, never mentions the virgin birth. James doesn't mention it. John in his letters doesn't mention it. Revelation doesn't mention it. Peter doesn't mention it. And the Old Testament doesn't even mention it or predict it, except maybe in one verse. We'll get to that in a minute. Why? If it's true, wouldn't everyone have talked about it? So in response, let's say, honestly, I can understand why this would cause some to have heartburn. This is an epic event. Why wouldn't it be talked about more widely? I think there's a good answer. Let's remember that the guys who wrote the New Testament were first and foremost evangelists. They were not objective observers. They weren't trying to be. They don't report to being. They wanted to convince you and I. They were telling us a story to convince us. They're sharing in order to win us over. 
I don't know if you have shared your faith with someone else before. I know many of you have. But when I share my faith, I talk about the incredible things that Jesus did in his life. I like to talk about these unbelievable encounters that Jesus had with people when they got up close to him and how they responded to him. I like to talk about the impact that he's had on my life most of all. I'll talk about the death and the resurrection. I never bring up the virgin birth. I really think this explains why it's not mentioned outside of Luke and Matthew's account. Plus, listen, the fact that the Old Testament doesn't really discuss it actually adds to its believability. In other words, this isn't what Messiah watchers were expecting. It wouldn't have occurred to them to make up this detail. All told, I think this objection does not prevent us from reasonably believing in the virgin birth of Jesus. Second objection. There are other virgin birth stories about ancient Near Eastern heroes. Didn't the Christians just steal this idea to promote their hero? For instance, Horos was the Egyptian falcon-headed god whose origin story is a human mother, a god, has relations with her. Horos is the product, and he becomes a god. Or there's, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, I'm sorry for those of you who are from Aztecan descent, but Huitzilopochtli. Huitzilopochtli. He was the Aztecan god of war who also, same kind of origin story, human mother, god for a father. There's Zi, the Chinese god of agriculture who became the mythical ancestor of the Chinese Zhao dynasty. Also, human mother, godfather, uh, becomes a god and, you know, the and mythical ancestor to this dynasty. Then there were a couple of pharaohs who may have had this, as, it's not really clear, but they may have had this as part of their origin story, and there was a Roman Caesar who may have had this as, as part of his origin story, and then certainly Alexander the Great did. There's a recounting of Alexander the Great's birth of a godfather, I mean a literal god, became his father with his human mother. This account was written 200 or 250 years after Alexander's death. The implication here is that the New Testament authors have heard these stories and they've taken this well-known ancient Near Eastern trope about virgin births that's designed to prove the divinity of their heroes and they've attributed it to Jesus to prove his divinity. So in response, we have to admit it's attractive to think that Christians have just amplified their hero in the same way other ancient peoples have by attaching the account of virgin birth to his life. That makes sense. But the details of this objection don't add up the way you might first imagine. First of all, most of these stories are stories about the gods. They're not stories about actual human beings. You might not think that's a big deal, but think about it this way. Let's imagine that the Christians had a, an origin story about the Holy Spirit. And we didn't see the Holy Spirit, and he, he was never on the planet with us, but... The Holy Spirit was the product of God the Father having sex with a human woman, and then the Holy Spirit becomes some part of the Trinity or something. That would have an entirely different feel than the virgin birth of the baby Jesus. And, and it, that, by the way, that would be similar to these other ancient Near Eastern accounts, but that's not what the account of Jesus' birth is. Luke's account details the birth of an actual human baby. Now, there are a few stories, as we noted, attributed to actual people, but they're very, very loosely attested, always only one witness, and they were written generations after the person actually lived. Finally, there's not a lot of evidence, contrary to what your college religion professor told you, 
Honestly, there's not a lot of evidence that Christians borrowed much from other religions, especially in, in the substance of their beliefs. In summary, this is an attractive idea for skeptics, and it, it should give us pause, but it doesn't prevent any of us from believing. This is not a slam-dunk case against the virgin birth. Third objection to believing in the virgin birth, there were early rumors about Jesus' illegitimate birth. This could explain why Christians needed to invent a virgin birth story. So let me give you one of those early rumors. Origen was an early church theologian. He wrote a tract in which he defended Jesus' virgin birth against the, a philosopher named Celsus, who was a pagan skeptic of Christianity. This interchange happened around 178 AD, which is about 150 years after Jesus' death. So Celsus was a proponent of the idea that the virgin birth story was a fiction invented by Jesus himself. Listen, he believed that Jesus was the biological product of Mary, his mother, and a Roman soldier named Pantera. The real story, according to Celsius, who, by the way, got it from Jewish sources, was that Jesus' mother was impregnated by the soldier, gave birth to Jesus alone and in seclusion and in secret with none of the story elements that we see in Matthew and Luke. Jesus ended up going to Egypt where he learned how to do some cool magic tricks. He developed this God complex that got him in a whole lot of trouble later in his life. The idea, of course, is that this kind of rumor sort of forced Christians, perhaps Jesus himself, to defensively produce an alternative narrative, right? In response, we have to admit that, you know, the one element of Celsius's account that gives it weight is the fact that the Jewish source actually supplied a name for the Roman soldier. So this would suggest that we shouldn't dismiss it too easily. However, let's acknowledge that this story has absolutely no corroborating evidence to back it up. It's nowhere else in print. It's nowhere else acknowledged that this is believed by anybody else anywhere else. Now, it's true that there are other general rumors of illegitimacy, but when we consider this source of doubt, even if we take it seriously, we have to recognize that the presence of a rumor like this is not convincing evidence against the virgin birth. For one thing, the Jews and Romans had just as much political reason to discredit Jesus as the Christians had to legitimize him. So the essential question as it relates to this is, is the virgin birth a fiction meant to cover up the sordid details of Jesus' illegitimate birth, or is it a slander meant to discredit Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God, and the presence of, of these accounts are not convincing either way. I mean, overall, honestly, we live in the age of fake or supposed news. This argument is fairly weak overall to me. Stay with me. We're coming to a giant conclusion. Fourth, fourth objection. There are other problems with historical accuracy of the birth narratives. Perhaps this throws the whole story into question. And I've had many of you ask me these kind of questions before about the scripture in general, and the birth narratives of Jesus are no exception. And when you turn on that Discovery Channel documentary over the Christmas holidays, I guarantee you they'll talk about this. So let me give you the most troubling, the most thorny difficulty, discrepancy. In Luke's account, as we just read, this all happened, the birth of Jesus happened when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius was a real guy. And he is attested in documents outside of the New Testament, and he was governor of Syria. And they have a pretty clear idea of when he was governor of Syria, beginning about 6 A.D. 
This stuff, birth of Jesus, also happened when Herod was king over the area. And we have a pretty good idea, based on other documents, of when Herod was king over the area and his kingship ended in 4 AD. Oops, we have a two-year gap. How do we explain that? Because Matthew has this seated in a time before 4 AD, and Luke has this seated in a time frame after 6 AD. Oh my goodness, perhaps we should throw the whole account out. This is how these arguments usually go. And you need to know, being as objective as we can be, there are almost always alternative explanations that completely cover, completely explain these kinds of difficulties. For example, it's known that Quirinius served in a lesser capacity before 6 AD in the same office. He was something like a lieutenant governor. So in Mary's memory or in Luke's retelling of it, the two positions might have understandably gotten conflated. Does this honestly amount to a serious problem for believing in the virgin birth? Seriously, these discrepancy problems are often so overblown, and I know you heard them in your college religion class, but they're rarely as troublesome as scholars like to make them seem, and almost never in relation to the New Testament, by the way. I read one internet post this week from a skeptic that listed this discrepancy as, in the overall story as the primary objection to believing in the virgin birth for him. By the way, I've just given you what most scholars believe to be the most profound discrepancy in this story. This doesn't merit us throwing out the accounts of two people who actually knew the parties involved. We've got a written account from two people who knew the parties involved. This discrepancy does not amount to throwing those two accounts out. Fifth objection. You're going to have to let me unravel this one. I won't be long, but it's circuitous. When Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14, the actual word from Isaiah that he quoted was young woman, not virgin. Perhaps the whole virgin account is based on that misunderstanding. So let me lay it out for you. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and here's our word, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Here's kind of how the argument goes. The word that Isaiah uses in Hebrew, because Isaiah wrote in Hebrew, is a word most often translated young girl, not virgin. In fact, Hebrew scholars argue about whether or not it can ever be translated virgin. Many think it can, but some argue that it should never be translated virgin. Then, When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, which happened about 200 years before Jesus was born, the translators used the Greek word virgin to translate this word in Isaiah 7. It's generally agreed that Matthew used that Greek version as the basis for all of his Old Testament quotes. So the argument goes something like this. Well, Matthew has misunderstood Isaiah's original intent, and thus he created the idea of virgin birth. And then Luke, according to the argument, just followed Matthew's lead on this. This is where the whole virgin birth idea comes from. Against this, I would say a very technical, so try to stay with me, this is an extremely technical argument, but against this, I would say, who cares? It's true that the idea of virgin birth is not mentioned anywhere except for the one suspect verse in Isaiah. But who cares? 
As I said earlier, Old Testament silence about the virgin birth or near silence actually increases its believability. This wasn't something they were expecting. This was not a detail that they knew they needed to add to the story. Further, it's pretty clear that Luke is doing far more than just following Matthew's account here. In fact, Luke has a very different account of the birth of Jesus. He didn't know about the visit of the Magi, or at least he didn't include it if he knew it, but Matthew knows nothing about the shepherds and the angel sighting. And Matthew didn't know about Mary's encounter with the angel and, and how Mary felt about that. The differences actually serve to corroborate the story. They're clearly coming from two completely independent accounts. To me, this is the least troublesome objection. In short, in my opinion, considering the objections so far, we do not have a case that merits overthrowing two independent near-event testimonies. All right, so that brings us to number six, and we're rounding to the final turn here. Number six, the sixth reason to doubt the historicity of this account is it's not medically possible. Aha! Now we've arrived at it. This is the crux of our doubt, or at least it is for mine. Let me underscore this. If virgin births were maybe an unusual thing, but a known occurrence with a medical explanation, no one would ever doubt this account. All of the rest of these objections would go away. This is it. We have been trained, you and I, to believe what we can see and repeat. We believe doctors more than we believe God. We believe physicists more than we believe God. We believe biologists more than we believe God. This is why we've reasoned out explanations to wrap our heads around how a virgin birth story got inserted into this account. And let me be clear, our discussion here, our time together, this is not an argument against science. It's, this is not an argument against reason. Far from it, I'm trying to appeal to our reason today. As much as possible, we need to test out these things precisely because true religion is true. And if it's not true, then we need to adjust our sights. So this is not an argument against reason, but it is an appeal to faith, which is both a complement to, and it supersedes the knowledge that we acquire through science. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's take medical analysis. How often have you heard, and the older you are, the more likely you are to have heard this, maybe more than once. How often have you heard a doctor say, we just don't know? Let me answer that question for you many times. For example, in a typical cancer scenario, you'll hear a doctor say something like this. Well, there's a 70% chance of survival given this cancer and this treatment regimen. And this is their way of being honest with us, and we appreciate that, and of helping us set right expectations. And then we ask, why, doc? Why some and not others? And that's when the doctor gives us his answer. We just don't know. But we have some ideas, some factors that can contribute to one or the other, but ultimately we don't know. What if the answer to their question, to our question, is that their statistics, which are true, amount to nothing more than organizing what God allows and what he doesn't? I'm not trying to oversimplify this for us. 
I promise. Personally, I have an annual physical. I do all that the doctor tells me to do. I greatly respect his knowledge and the science on which it's based, but I also know, ultimately, my life is in God's hands. Regardless of what the doctor says or doesn't say, regardless of what the doctor does or doesn't do, my life is in God's hands. Here's the thing about objecting to the virgin birth because it's medically impossible. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. We can pretty safely guarantee Luke agreed. He was a doctor. We know for a fact Mary agreed. That's why when the angel told her the news, she said, how in the world is that going to happen? We know Joseph agreed because when Joseph heard, he wanted to dismiss Mary. Luke is not claiming that this is a normal, explainable thing. He's not even claiming that this is a special thing. He's claiming that this is utterly unique. For Luke, this was further demonstration and confirmation of Jesus' utter uniqueness. He was uniquely God's son. That's the point. It is not medically possible. So what? For this whole discussion, so what? What are the implications of our faith? So let's go to the finish line. I'm going to give you two. You may have others, but these are big. Implication number one, our lives matter. If this story actually happened, the details of our lives matter. What you do this afternoon matters. The choices you make and the choices you have made matter. They have consequences, and those consequences matter. We matter. Some time ago, I'm so apologizing, I don't, I'm going to butcher the details of this, but I saw a special, I think it was a couple of years ago, I saw a special about some famous American, I don't remember who it was, and I remember all of this because the response I'm going to give you in a second, when I first heard it, I thought it was ridiculous. I didn't like it, and then the more I thought about it, the more it made sense, but this person, it might have been Angelina Jolie, but I don't remember who it was, they were visiting a refugee camp somewhere in Central Africa. And there were just tens of thousands of people in horrible conditions, and this person was doing good work. But mostly what they were doing was wandering around just holding people's hands. It was, it's very moving. And at one point, you know, this was a documentary, so there was a lot. It was grimy, and it was gritty, and there were real people in a real place, and we were hearing voiceovers and interview format. And at one point, this person was holding the hand of a mother, and an interviewer was speaking. They didn't speak English, so an interviewer was speaking to the person asking, and the interpreter was telling us, and they asked the question, what does this mean to you that, you know, she's here? And the mother's response was, it means that we matter. As I said, when I first heard that, I thought that's because Angelina Jolie's here, you matter? That just was stupid to me. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized it means that they're not invisible, that, that the world knows there are people who care. The fact that God's son visited our planet means that we matter. Your life matters. It is a big deal. It's important. Your decisions matter. Look, the alternative is clear. Albert Camus is the father of existentialism, which is kind of the uncle or the cousin of secular humanism, and that's kind of the religion of the West. Albert Camus said, this is a quote, the only real question is suicide. It doesn't matter. But Camus is wrong. It matters, all of it. 
Suicide is not the question. In fact, the lead question for you and I is what will you and I make of the gift of our lives? Because it matters. Okay, the second thing that this story means, and this is a big one, the second thing is if this story is true, then wow, Jesus is worthy of worship. Angels, which are by the way true, they're real if this story is true, angels, angels worshipped him. Everybody who consistently, the response of people who get close to Jesus is this. People who got close to Jesus, if you follow it in the uh, the New Testament accounts, the people who got close to Jesus, they don't admire Jesus. They're not fans. The people who get close to Jesus, they either think he's crazy or they hate him or they worship him. There's no other response. If this story is true, we worship him. That's why we gather here every Sunday morning and do this. That's why we read his story. That's why we share with one another. Because if this story is true, wow, we worship him. Okay, I want you to do something for me. We're going to conclude by reading this account. We'll read the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to be again reading from the English Standard Version. But I want you to go old school with me. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word as we read this account. Luke 2, 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And and Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. uh, To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger and suddenly it was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased
Merry Christmas, and please go in peace.